Juan Orlando Hernandez has officially been extradited from Honduras. On April 21st, a crowd of Hondurans cheered as the U.S. Department of Justice plane, carrying Ho, took off from the Tegucigalpa airport. Again, it was a bittersweet moment for Honduras, but there's something really nice knowing that he's no longer here in the country. The following day, after arriving in the U.S., Juan Orlando Hernandez appeared via video conferencing before a judge. His next hearing is already scheduled for May 10th, when Judge Kevin Castle from the Southern District Court will formally read the charges against him. And this will be the hearing where Ho will plead guilty or not guilty. But even before this hearing on May 10th, at any moment, a hearing will take place where Ho's detention status will be reviewed. Ho's family has already publicly said many times that they're gathering financial support so that he can be released pending trial. This is unlikely to happen, but I don't doubt at all that the Hernandez family will be able to come up with at least or even more than what's likely to be asked for him to be released pending trial, approximately $4 million. Ho's future isn't the only important issue in the country. The new Castro government is picking up the pieces and faces a large uphill battle to attend to the needs and demands of the Honduran people. Welcome to the Honduras Now podcast. This podcast shares human rights stories from Honduras and connects them with global issues and North American policy. I'm your host, Karen Spring, a longtime human rights activist that has lived in Honduras for over a decade. Thanks so much for listening. In this episode, I will share an extensive analysis provided by Tomas Sandino, who is a sociologist, a former congressional representative, and a political analyst. He is a member of the Convergence Against Re-Election and the National Movement Against the Zedes. He frequently publishes articles and analysis in Spanish. In mid-March of this year, Tomas Sandino did a presentation in a forum organized by the Honduras Solidarity Network. As part of that forum, we asked Tomas to help us understand what our role as U.S. or Canadian citizens is in this new Honduran context. Now, President Ziamara has been in power for less than three months. It's almost too soon to provide much analysis of what the government has done so far, but there have been significant and important laws passed. In the presentation I share below, Tomas outlines some of these and talks about the additional work that still has to be done. Some specifics of this presentation, such as the repeal of the laws that created the zones of economic development and employment, the ZEDES, have been acted on since Tomas gave his presentation. Next month, I will go into what the government has done so far after the 100 days in government mark, particularly the changes that are most relevant to people watching Honduras from outside. With no further ado, this is Tomas Sandino. En primer lugar, muchas gracias por la invitación. Un saludo a todos los compañeros, compañeras solidarios de, de Estados Unidos y otros países que nos puedan acompañar. First, thank you for this invitation. Saludos to all the compañeros in solidarity who are in the United States and in other countries. I think in the time that we have, I'd like to share an analysis about what it means for Xiomara Castro and her government taking power 
in the current historical context. What are some of the main challenges? What do I see the challenges that the government faces and what are some of the needs in Honduras for international support? I think the question many ask is, how did a left-leaning government, which to me is more center-left, get to power in Honduras? And how did the United States government allow that to occur? How did the new government win the last elections after a dictatorship? Was there electoral fraud? How did they win? And also, how are they doing in power? How is it that the new government has support from the United States? These are some of the frequent questions people ask. I'm going to share my opinion because these questions are important in this particular moment, in the current context. From my point of view, Kiyomara Castro's victory was a just and legitimate victory. The majority of the people went to the polls to vote and show their support for her. This support was also shown during previous elections in 2013. In 2017, an alliance was formed with the Libre and Salvador party of Honduras. They went to elections with Nasrallah as the candidate, and they won. But with the electoral fraud, and we know this history from 2017 that there was fraud, and then massive repression in Honduras. And now, after these recent elections, last November 21st, the victory was overwhelming. A landslide against the party that used to be in power. But many say, if they didn't allow Libre to win before, then why now? Why in the November elections last year? In my opinion, this has to do with the struggle led by the Honduran people. This has not been, from my point of view, a concession or a victory gifted by the U.S. government. Why do I say this? Well, first, this victory is the product of a struggle that was waged over these 12 years in different spaces, at different times, that had its ups and downs, but that at certain moments helped to corner the Honduran government, which was supported by the U.S. government. The popular resistance since 2009 more or less until 2011, was a powerful struggle. It was an event that showed the world that the Honduran people didn't want to have a golpista government, that is, a government that came into power through a coup. In 2015, the first movement against the scandalous corruption in the government was formed. It was called the Antorchas, or Torchlight Movement, and it got thousands of people in the streets of Honduras in 2015. It put the topic of corruption into the spotlight, even on an international level, to the point that a product of demands was, in part, the formation of the mission to support the fight against corruption, the MACHI, which revealed many government corruption cases internationally. Afterwards, there were struggles that formed against presidential re-election, against drug trafficking, the demands for public health and education in the years following that. And recently, as of 2018, the struggle of the Honduran people spilled outside of our national borders when Hondurans began walking to the U.S. border through the so-called migrant caravans that for us aren't migrant caravans, but instead a mass exodus in search of refuge, being that it's a human right to migrate and people's right to seek refuge when they feel their life is threatened in Honduras. So this mass mobilization was developing for years and hit the U.S. border in 2018 and was converted into an international phenomenon. Just like in 2014, the large and massive journey of people to the U.S., when Honduran children were put in prisons, in cages, in the North American internment camp. This all contributed to the dramatic decline in the regime's image. And on the other hand, also in the country, the struggle against drug trafficking and corruption grew to incredible levels. I remember well when I did analysis about the situation of the government during the Obama years. President Obama, around 2016, was headed towards replacing President Juan Orlando Hernandez with another candidate in the 2017 election. But in 2016, Donald Trump became the President of the United States, and he made a different decision and favored the continuity of the Juan Orlando Hernandez government. Because of that, 
Ho's removal from power was delayed by four years. What I'm saying is, the exit of this government was a decision that the Democrats had already decided on in 2016. I remember all the movements that the Obama administration made to achieve this. So the decision of the Trump administration to support Ho's re-election did nothing except exacerbate and deepen the contradictions and make the political polarization in Honduras even more profound. It was inevitable that the United States would have to get rid of their pawn Juan Orlando Hernandez, who had served the U.S. well. But they had to cover for him for a long time in Honduras. It was ultimately inevitable that they would have to remove him. But another situation also occurred in Honduras. The political card that the U.S. had in order to be able to substitute the dictator Juan Orlando Hernandez from power was the formation of a moderate right in Honduras that was led by, in my opinion, Salvador Nasrallah. I think in some way Nasrallah had a lot of international political support from the Democrats at that time. In 2017, when he was the candidate, and they hoped that in the 2021 election, he would again be a strong candidate. But because the decision of the U.S. government in 2017 led to a huge polarization and made political positions more extreme at both ends of the political spectrum, there wasn't a space for a moderate candidate. And the Honduran electorate oriented towards a more radical candidate, or the most radical in the Honduran political electoral spectrum. That was the candidacy of Shimara Castro. And since even before the alliance was formed between Xiomara Castro and Nasrallah in the last month of the 2021 electoral campaign, by that time Xiomara Castro had a high voting percentage and there was no chance for the center, like the electoral center's position, to be successful. For this reason, the United States, I think, evaluated various things. In the first place, Xiomara's victory was internally inevitable and they had to play that card. It was the reality here. And I also think that they were working throughout the 2021 electoral campaign on a negotiation, a type of dialogue with the main political actors, including opposition parties, and even the National Party, or at least some members of the National Party. The fraud by Honduran actors was already being prepared for the 2021 election, but it didn't work, at least at the presidential level, and the elections were clean. And Xiomara's candidacy was accompanied by Salvador de Estrada, which meant that inside the new government was a person, let's say, a friend of the U.S. government, which has been said publicly and internationally. Nasrallah's involvement is like a safeguard that the Xiomara Castro government will not step out of line or cross the line into radical political positions. And for this reason, the electoral alliance that exists in this new government is acceptable for the Biden administration, which wanted a political change. This means that the new government comes from and grew from a historic popular struggle. But it also means that it grew from a position where it faces conditions imposed from the North, from the United States, which presents itself to the Honduran people and to the new government as a friendly government, one that will economically support it, that will provide technical assistance, that will do all the necessary lobbying on diverse issues, etc., etc. But, in my opinion, this is not sincere. It's pure demagogy, because it's a temporary political position of the U.S. government that will also be conditioned, not only on the factors I have mentioned, but also on international factors. As we know, the United States has serious problems in other regions of the world, and the U.S. needs to reconstruct and remake their relationships with diverse progressive governments in Latin America. But not with the objective of strengthening them, but just to pass a moment of turmoil, and then to later strengthen the right or center-right in those countries, to later take away the force of progressive platforms. So for me, I'm expecting that this government, the government of Xiomara Castro, next year will be heavily conditioned, politically and economically, by the U.S., and in particular, through USAID the official social organization of the U.S. government. 
so they're going to generate and monopolize many specific positions on education, healthcare, and all the important social programs and spaces. The presence of USAID in Honduras is very strong, and it plays a determining role in these sectors. And now, I think this will just grow. So the US government is taking advantage of this moment of calm, the terrible economic situation that the previous government left behind in public institutions. It's really a terrible situation. I know, for example, that some current public officials in the Xiomara Castro government are working as volunteers, or they're working without being paid a salary, because the financial crisis left behind is horrific, and it has caused panic. Now, what has changed with this government? Well, the administration, the person in charge of the public administration, has changed. That, we all know and are aware. But the same government is aware that many, not the majority, of the largest part of the technical and political aspects of the previous government still remain in their positions inside the new government, and they know that they will not benefit from the current administration. What I mean is, I'm not referencing only the employees of state institutions that are lower-level employees, but also directors, subdirectors, vice ministers, etc., that are in key positions from the past administration and have not been removed. I worry this is because of a political pact made to make this administration at the very least governable. I don't oppose that there be a wide participation of all social and political sectors in the government, but I think that participation in any administration should be based on meritocracy. What I mean is, based on one's ability. And that ideal people are in key positions. People that are a product of a professional selection process, and that aren't just there because their presence satisfies some sort of political agreement, or that an opposition party not make too much noise at a specific moment. So this administration hasn't changed much personnel in key position. The face of the government has changed, but it's still too soon to know if President Xiomara will construct a public administration that responds to the largest challenges that the country confronts. What Tomas is referring to here is generating a lot of discussion and debate in the country. What tends to happen after new governments take power in Honduras and in other Central American countries is that the new government does a massive cleanup of state institutions. This happens because governments put their activists, or individuals that voted for their party, into these institutions. So a new government obviously takes out the employees from the last government and puts in their own supporters. But the Ziamara government has not carried out massive firings of National Party employees inside public institutions. I personally share Tomas's opinion that people should be selected for these jobs through a process based on their credentials. And this happens to some degree, but to a great degree, it doesn't. Because the Ziamara government hasn't given their bases and their political supporters that helped them win the elections and worked on their campaign some jobs inside state institutions, this has generated a lot of concern and anger amongst Libre supporters. Now let's get back to Tomás's presentation. Para mí, ¿cuáles son los grandes retos que tiene? El gobierno tiene cinco retos claves. Uno eh, es el tema del combate a la corrupción y el narcotráfico. ¿no? Es un tema central. In my opinion, the biggest challenges the current government faces are, well, there are five big challenges. The first is combating corruption and drug trafficking. This has been a central topic in the national context for more than a decade. Corruption and drug trafficking is, in part, what motivated a change of government. And I think the current government has taken important steps to call for an international commission to support the Honduran government in conducting investigations of the most relevant corruption cases and to bring those responsible to justice. The request for the International Commission Against Impunity has been made by the Honduran government to the United Nations. This is an important step. 
There are also expectations of the new National Congress, led by Luis Redondo, which will be where the new Supreme Court magistrates and the new Attorney General are elected next year. Once elected, they will make important changes to the structure of the state. But there's another important topic related to justice. I mentioned securing justice for those involved in corruption, but there must be justice for the people that have been persecuted over the last 12 years for their social activism or their political positions. And in this case as well, I think there has been an important step forward with the political amnesty. The amnesty law passed by the new Congress, which was misinterpreted by certain sectors who were campaigning against the new government, is to benefit people that were persecuted. But opposition sectors have instead focused on the other aspect of the amnesty law that has to do with political or public administration crime. But overall, I think the amnesty law is a positive step. And we are seeing social leaders who were criminalized or accused for political reasons having the charges against them dropped. But also there are other demands, social demands from the territories or where there are natural resources and territorial struggles, from groups that are fighting against mining, against the construction of hydroelectric dams, against tourist projects. The government has recently made a very important decision, and I think really is the right one, to prohibit open pit mining and implement a forestry ban. This is an important decision. The challenge is how to apply the ban to the previous administrative decisions and those that oppose the decisions or who will try to boycott it. Other related topics are social issues, economic resources like employment, the issue of land, housing, etc. that have to do with reversing the neoliberal measures that have been implemented in various sectors for many years. Another important challenge is the issue of national sovereignty in relation to the issue of the zones of economic development and employment, CEDES. What I'm referring to is the eradication of the CEDES project, and also, something else that should be removed from Honduras, is the military presence by the U.S. A lot of those challenges were presented to the government prior to Xiomara's inauguration, and around 200 or 300 proposals were made by social movements. These proposals were made during a national dialogue between organized sectors of Honduran society with a transition commission appointed by the new elected government immediately following these elections, which opened a space of dialogue. Organized sectors presented lots of proposals with the idea that the government would implement them. All of these proposals were an accumulation of very important demands, which were discussed and evaluated again in April during a large national gathering of the social movements. The idea is that the social movements will push for the proposals to be implemented and will work to improve what they are asking from the government. Now, what are the obstacles that these processes have? I think there are two. First, contextual obstacles that are immediate, in this moment, and structural obstacles. But the contextual obstacles, I can already identify them in what's happening with the current and new government. Firstly, the disastrous financial situation from the previous administration that basically left public finances with nothing. Basically, almost everything the new government needs to get off the ground has been stolen or has been destroyed by the previous government. This is something that makes it difficult for the government to reconstruct and reposition itself. On the other hand, I already mentioned that much of the remnants of the previous government remain. Thirdly, another contextual factor for me is not being able to count on a national congress with a two-thirds majority in Congress, an absolute majority, that allows the Congress to approve very important laws that could help overcome many national problems. On the other hand, there is a strategy to discredit the new government, and I think it's important to recognize that as a problem. This doesn't mean that to be critical of the government is to discredit it, because a person can be critical of the government not with a bad intention, but precisely with the intention to improve it. Now, there are other obstacles, the structural problems, that in my view, are the most important. In the first place, the weight or burden of Honduras's external debt is extraordinary. In Honduras, 50% of the national budget is budgeted to pay the interest and capital of the external debt. This is inconceivable. 
a country almost destroyed by the 12-year narco dictatorship that took power following a coup. Other than all of that, we know that there were two hurricanes and also the pandemic. This all has put Honduras in a very difficult situation, similar to Haiti, which I think is a sexier topic than Honduras. Sorry for using that term. What I mean is, Honduras, like Haiti, doesn't draw a lot of international attention, and it's a country practically unknown to many. A country where there is a social and humanitarian crisis. Another issue is that Honduras is the headquarters, or the most important operational center, of U.S. Southern Command in Central America. And this is not an irrelevant matter. I remember, for example, when the Charge of Affairs, the U.S. official in charge of business relations, Heidi Fulton, who was an active U.S. military officer, was stationed here in the U.S. Embassy around the time of the 2017 electoral crisis. Since the 2009 coup, it's not even the U.S. State Department that determines what happens in Honduras. It's the U.S. Department of Defense. Honduras is viewed as a military stronghold, or strategic in military terms. And this worries us. I recently wrote an article about this topic because of the problem of Honduras' sovereignty, not just on the topic of sedes, but today, with all the international conflicts taking place, particularly what is happening in Europe, Honduras is very vulnerable because of this U.S. military presence. We don't know the types of weapons that the U.S. maintains here in the country and the U.S. military bases, and for this reason, we need government policies that confront the situation in a correct and politically speaking, progressive manner. Now, what do we hope is the type of support as U.S. citizens that you can give us? From my point of view, in the first place, I would hope that the Honduran government will initiate a process of refoundation, a true and real refoundation of Honduras, through convening a national constituent assembly. Why? Because this process allows for many of the roadblocks or challenges that I mentioned to be eliminated, and a constituent assembly will allow for the changes that are needed. What do we want from the people in solidarity with Honduras? One, that you help the new Honduran government with the international financial institutions so that they don't make us pay the external debt and so that the government can place a moratorium on debt payments. Secondly, demand that the U.S. government not intervene, that they don't intervene in the political and social aspects of Honduras through U.S. agencies like USAID and others, that they don't place conditions on any support that they do give. And finally, that you accompany us on the issue of CEDES, being against the CEDES and against the U.S. and foreign military presence in Honduras. The demands to convene a National Constituent Assembly, as Tomás mentioned, has been a consistent demand by the social movement since the 2009 coup. It has also been a promise of the Libre Party since its formation shortly after. It's hard to fathom how different a country would be, or could be, if the Constitution was rewritten. In many respects, this remains a hope of many sectors in Honduras. But to date, it has not been something that the new government has acted on with much seriousness. I hope Tomás's presentation was informative. I find his analyses of the U.S. role in Honduras not only enlightening, but nuanced, so that one outside the country can really understand how some Hondurans view the powerful and overwhelming influence of the United States on policy and on electoral issues in Honduras. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Find the show notes and translations of interesting articles and analyses at HondurasNow.org. This is your host, Karen Spring. Thanks so much for listening. Hasta pronto. Y en tus pilegas gloriosos cubiertos Serán muchos Honduras tus muertos Pero todos caerán con honor